0: We serve a God who is indeed the ancient of days, from the beginning and before the beginning and until the end of time. He's the ruler. He's the king, and we serve him. It's good to see you this morning. Many of you know that we've been studying Christians in government the last couple of weeks, and it's always an exciting topic. I, I, I'm surprised that Christians don't have stronger opinions about politics, aren't you? It's really kind of interesting when you start talking about politics. I am a ham radio operator, amateur radio operator, and one of the things they tell us that you should not talk about on the airways are politics. Of course, they also tell us we shouldn't talk about religion, and so I don't. We just talk about Jesus, and, and, and that works out pretty well. But now I want to uh, continue where we started last week. We started, as Oregon read, just a little while ago in Romans chapter 13, verses 1-7, through 7, and we spent most of our time... In the first two verses, uh, which simply says that we are to submit to government, that ruling authorities, that they are authorities placed in position by God. They are his ministers, and they are his servants. And then we we announced last week we would continue this week with with the question, what happens when government's wrong? What happens when government gets it wrong? And I've had several people during the week and even this morning say, boy, can't wait to hear what you've got to say about this. And I'm, I'm excited, too. I can't, I can't wait to see what we have to say about this. I, I was talking to Parks earlier. I, I will tell you, this could easily be a seven-sermon series, easily. It could be a book, and many people have written books on it. But we're going to kind of skip through some things this morning. But I do want us to remember some key truths. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment or damnation or condemnation. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the truth of your word. Eternal truth that abides forever. Thank you that you have given us as our king, our constitution. You've given us. Our laws, our rules, you've given us the things that we are to know and to do and to be. And I pray, Father, this morning that you will take control of this service, that you will instruct us, that we will bow to the wisdom of your word, that we will not misinterpret, we will not read into the text anything that's not there, but that you will bring out of the text truth that we can apply to our lives by your power as we acknowledge you as the Ancient of Days, as our King, as our Ruler. Remind us that we have a dual citizenship, if you will. We are citizens of heaven first and foremost, and you have our ultimate and utmost allegiance. And yet we live here in a world where there are earthly governments, and we are to submit to their authority as well, except when we're not. Give us wisdom to know the difference. In your name I pray, amen. All right, now I'm glad. Just a few things to remember. And you will notice we're going to get through these first two points on the outline quick. If you're taking notes, you're going to think by point two, it's a short sermon. It's not. Just want to give you fair warning. But the first thing is we've got to remember that God ordains governments. That every person that rules, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, who is described, at least in some circumstances, Daniel chapter 4, as the lowest of men who did some bad things. Doesn't matter who it is, God ordains government. And even though governments get it wrong, all right, some governments are actively evil, acting under the God of this age. Here's the deal we need to remember. God always gets it right. Amen. God is sovereign, He's providential, and He always gets it right. And according to Job and Scripture that we see throughout repeated, God's will is never thwarted. No one can stop Him or cause Him to stumble or shut down His plans or His working. God always acts in accordance to His own will, and what He acts happens. So how do Christians, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, relate to a government, the state, and the earthly kingdoms? Maybe the phrase that we're most accustomed to is the phrase simply church and state. Our allegiance is first to God, and our constitution is His word. He's the Lord. He's the boss. He's the ancient of days. He's the one who rules, and though governments will pass, God is eternal, and His kingdom is eternal. His, as his subjects he's given us the role and the task and the privilege to participate with him in his work and what are we called to do you remember our commission what is the purpose of this congregation we exist we west end exist to glorify god by making mature disciples of all nations starting here in the west end we have a mission a commission you remember when we started in acts chapter 1 that uh, uh, Luke, as he's writing, the historian, as he's writing, he begins, these are the works of Jesus and that continued after Jesus' death. These things that began with him in his incarnation continue in his, lo- in his body, the church. Uh, we are to allow him to continue in our bodies the work he did in his body while he was incarnate on earth. And I think we miss this sometimes because isn't it fun to talk about March Madness? That's kind of a topic change there, isn't it? Isn't it fun to talk about politics? Do you guys like that? Isn't it fun to engage over the issues of our days? And sometimes if it's not fun, it's just emotionally engaging. We get hooked. We get trapped into the things that are taking place around us, and they take our attention. Uh, We get so involved on things of earth that we forget that the world's greatest need is the Lord Jesus Christ. The world's greatest need is forgiveness of sins. The world's greatest need is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. The world's greatest need is to have their life completely turned around and made new by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We think, of course, that we want to change the world's behavior. We'll talk about that more as we get into this, when what the world mostly needs, what the world's greatest need is, is Jesus. They need to know that they're lost apart from Him. They need to know that, judgment is coming they need to know that God loves them and made a way for them to escape the coming judgment in his son Jesus Christ they need to know Jesus not just about Jesus they need to confess and repent and turn to him and to be washed and cleansed and set free and made new and even in our discussions about politics the gospel wins amen you should never we'll get to this in a minute You should never, I'll just throw it out now, go ahead and make everybody as mad as I can. You should never have a political discussion with someone that you can't follow up with an invitation to follow Christ. Very important to understand that. Our highest goal is to be used by God to see lost men and women come to know the Savior as Lord. It's more important than who's running for president. The problem is that we forget the price. Now, who's running for president is important. Don't misunderstand me. It's very important. But it's not as important as the souls of men and women. And that leads us to the second point, the gospel's preeminent. We're citizens of heaven. God ordains governments, and he governs governments. God ordains governments, and he governs governments. But he also, the gospel is preeminent for his citizens, for his family. C.S. Lewis reminded Christians that human beings live forever. While the state is only temporary and thus is reserved to comparative insignificance. Here's the point. To spend your time trying to change the state when you could be offering people eternal salvation. That's a bad bargain. That's a bad trade. To abandon the message that gives life to the eternal soul in favor temporal change. He quote, I'll quote, prostitutes the purpose of a believer's life. That would be like a heart surgeon abandoning his life-saving practice to become a makeup artist. The church needs to use all of its powers and its resources to bring men and women to Christ Jesus. That is what God's called us to do. Can we, can we amen that? Priority, we're citizens of heaven. We, we have a king. Our primary purpose and goal is to glorify God and make disciples. It is to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So recognizing that God ordains and governs governments and recognizing that the gospel is most important and eternally important, what do we do when these two worlds collide? When my allegiance to my king and my allegiance to my government collide, what do we do? It's a good question, and that's our focus this morning. And so I want us to kind of look at this, but... First of all, I want to, by the way, we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture this morning, so we will be jumping around. But Jesus addressed this directly. Romans 13 is one place, but there's another place where Jesus, the, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. You remember this passage in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22. The Pharisees hated Roman rule. They wanted independence and Jewish rule. And yet there were the Herodians by their name they were in favor of herod they were in favor of the roman rule and they got together to trap jesus matthew 22 verse 15 says the pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words they wanted to make him misstep and they sent their disciples to them along with these herodians their natural enemies and they said teacher we know that you are true And that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now that's a trick question in that context. The Herodians would say absolutely it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The Jews or the Pharisees, the Jewish independents would say absolutely not. It might be Their law, but it's certainly not our law. We are giving money to our oppressors. Either way, Jesus went. They thought they hit him over a barrel. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. They left him and they went away. They weren't happy. They marveled and they left him and they went away. Granted, neither group was happy with this answer, but he gives us the principle that answers the question of Christians under civic government. Let me start by saying that sometimes we make understanding how we deal with this conflict harder than it really is. And let me see if I can give an illustration. I kind of bounce this around the home group uh, Wednesday night to to help me. with. Come to home group. You can help with the sermons. I'm just going to throw that out there to help me on uh, on Wednesday night. Matter of fact, just meet me during the week. You can help with the sermons. I'm always asking for, for assistance or clarity. But suppose I have a kid on the baseball team. And I tell him, all right, bud, go. I want you to be a great baseball player. And when you are on that field, the coach is the boss. When you're practicing, when you're playing, you honor him and you respect him. You listen to him. You do what he tells you to do. When he tells you to run laps, you run laps. When he tells you to go to batting practice, you go to batting practice. When you run drills, you run drills. And if you're up at bat and you want to knock it out of the park and he says, bunt, you better bunt. He's the boss. You're under his authority. You go. But what if the coach chews tobacco? And in my household, we don't. Maybe he lets the kids choose because, you know, it's what baseball players do. By the way, it's what baseball players did. It's not what baseball players do. But for the sake of the illustration, we'll go back 20 years, okay? He so, said, all right, he, he chews, he lets the kids chew because it's what baseball players do. Does my kid chew? Not in my household. Because I'm his ultimate authority, he lives with me. He does what I say do. And so he does not do what his coach permits because he's yielded to a higher authority. You understand what I'm saying? Pretty clear, right? But let's take this to the absurd. What if the coach says, we are real men on this team. We will be chewing tobacco when we play baseball. You have to chew tobacco. Does my kid then have to chew tobacco to play baseball? Or does he partake in that? No, he does not. Why? Because the coach ain't his daddy. I am. And he follows my rules. He's in my household. He is under a higher, more permanent authority. And now he has to actively disobey the coach and suffer whatever consequences come with that. By the way, dad's going to go have a conversation with the coach. Do, do you understand what I'm talking about? Governing authorities, answering to our God who exacts vengeance and revenge who sets governments in place and causes things according to his purpose. But we live under these dual authorities, only we have a supreme authority. And when our governing earthly authorities are in a disagreement with that, we always yield to our, our God. We honor and submit to governing authorities until they command what God condemns or until they condemn what God commands. How's that? Somebody asked me, I don't know, I remember. earlier in the week, they said, are you going to tell us that we need to be passive and just good citizens and smile at whatever goes on? I said, no, we're fomenting rebellion this morning, but not exactly. I want us to be clear what how, what the scripture says. We're to do when government gets it wrong. I mean, This passage in Romans 13 says, we honor and submit to governing authorities. If we don't, they're in place by God. If we don't, we will face judgment for that. But it's not the only passage of Scripture, and it's not comprehensive in all of our interactions with governing authority. Most of the Bible is about how we respond to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, correct? It's the story of God. It's the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. There are passages that deal with this. First, uh, First Peter chapter 2, Titus chapter 3, Romans chapter 13. Multiple passages that deal with how we're to relate to government. But our primary allegiance and our primary obedience is to our King and our Lord. A few when the government commands what God condemns, may I tell you that we're to say no. And I started to just turn this into story time. But but Can I give you some examples from Scripture when people said no to their government? Pharaoh, you will remember, after Joseph had gone to Egypt, 430 years later there came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. He didn't remember Joseph. He certainly didn't worship Joseph's God. The Egyptians and the Israelites, the Jews, were living together, intermixed and mingled as as a people and the Jews were a threat. They were concerned. What happens if we have an enemy and the Jews side with them? We'll be overwhelmed. And so they enslaved the Jews because of the danger, because of the threat. The Pharaoh in Exodus chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen says, "When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But and, but if it is a daughter, let her live." But the midwives, verse 17, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the midwives disobeyed a command from Pharaoh, from their king. Well, it didn't please Pharaoh that they did so. And so he said, well, if you won't kill them at birth and call it a stillbirth or murder at birth or post-delivery abortion, if you will. He says, then when the baby's born, if it's a boy, throw him in the river. If it's a girl, she can live, but it's a boy, throw him in the river. Moses' parents disobeyed. A few verses later, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went, and he took as his wife a Levite woman. Her name was Jacobed. The woman conceived and bore a son, And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When he got to where she couldn't hide him, she made a little basket. She laid the baby in the basket. She had her daughter take it to the river where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. And it floated down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter picked that baby up, took it home, raised it in her home. And Jacobed, the mother of that child, was brought in to nurse him and to be his nursemaid his nana, I don't know what it's called, to raise him there. And that was Moses the God used to deliver his people. There's another story. Later on, after Moses' death, Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the Promised Land. And their first big battle is the Battle of Jericho. Do you remember Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down? Before the walls came tumbling down, Israel sent spies into the land, and the spies, the the, the citizens of Jericho and the politicians of Jericho knew the spies were coming. But these spies went, and they found a woman there named Rahab. And when they came searching, when the authorities came searching for the spies, Rahab hid them. When the authorities came and said, where are they? She said, well, they already went out. They went out at night. You just missed them. And then she went to the spies. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to these men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. Knowing what she knew about God, she disobeyed her government. What did we sing? Another in the fire? By the way, that was great. Thank you guys for that. Another in the fire. You guys remember that story? We're now, hundreds of years later, Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, have come and they've camp- captured the southern kingdom. They took people captive back to Babylon. Dan- there were four that were young men that were wise and intelligent. There was Daniel, there was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You're probably familiar with their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar, one day in his, by the way, they, they became part of the government. We'll talk about that later. One day in, in Nebuchadnezzar's hubris, he built this big golden statue. And he decided everyone was going to have to kneel and acknowledge that he is the king. And everyone, when the, when the, when the band played, if you will, when the, when, the, when the trumpets and the timbers were struck, everyone was to kneel before this statue And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refused. They did not. And there were those who saw them who didn't like them and were jealous, and they came and reported it to Nebuchadnezzar. You think that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was happy about that? Just listen to the story. Nebuchadnezzar was in a furious rage. And he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought And so they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them, and he said, Is it true what I've heard about you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, that you will not bow and worship the golden image I have set up? Now, we'll give you another chance. If you're ready, we're going to have the horn, and the lyre, and the trigon, and the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music. We're going to play it again. If you're ready, you fall down, and you worship the image I have made, and Everything will be okay. Here's your chance. Everything will be okay. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's got the authority, he's got the soldiers, he's got the method of punishment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. And By the way, what would you have said? They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, listen to, their, listen to the words. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this happens, if this be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, O king, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods. And we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was even more enraged and more filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he ordered the furnace not just hot, but he did seven times hotter than it had been. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up and to throw them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown, fully dressed, fully clothed into the fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the men who threw them in died because of their proximity to the fire. And yet Nebuchadnezzar stands there looking at the fiery furnace and he says, Didn't we throw three people in there? I see four. And the fourth is likened to the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace, and he called to them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out, and they did. And the Bible says that when they came out, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. God delivered them. And the result of this was their disobedience. And their tone and all that took place in God's deliverance, the result was that Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants and trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God other than their own. Now, Nebuchadnezzar goes a little overboard. He says, I make a decree that anybody who speaks anything against their God shall be torn limb from limb. I bet Sunday morning attendance was really good after that. But is it not the tendency of governments to overstep their authority? So what do we do? I could go on. Matter of fact, I am going to go on for just a minute. You remember Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel is no longer a young man. He's probably about 70 years old. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the ruler. As a matter of fact, Babylon's no longer in charge. Now it's Persia. Some folks come to Darius the king at the time and say, you ought to make it a rule because you're such a good king that nobody can pray to anybody or ask anything of anybody but you for 30 days. And they did this. Because they knew Daniel prayed three times a day, opening his window toward Jerusalem and prayed publicly three times a day. When Daniel knew that the order had been written, he opened his window and he prayed as he always had. Folks, that's civil disobedience. You do understand that. That is not doing what the local government has mandated be done. And so he prays. It's important to note that he knew what he was doing, and he knew that there were going to be consequences. Of course, Darius was aware he didn't. The people taught to trap him said, you made the rule, you can't back off on the rule, you've got to execute the punishment. Uh, the king loved him, and the king did not want to, but he had to. And so according to, or at least he had to, according to the laws of the Chaldeans. And so he put him into the pit, hoping that he would be safe and okay. And the next morning, Daniel is delivered. And, and it's important, King Darius as a result wrote to all the peoples and said, listen, you need to know that the God of Daniel is the one true God. He's the real God and all people should tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Let's talk about civil disobedience back in Israel. You guys remember Ahab and Jezebel? See, I, I don't know, I don't know. By the way, you guys who say the Bible's boring, shame on you. Shame on you. The Bible is one of the most exciting books that there is. Whether it's narrative history, whether it's romance, whether it's intrigue and spies and all the, the Bible is fascinating, and you see God move and work through it all. Ahab, wicked king, southern kingdom, married Jezebel, who was a Jezebel. And she hated God and hated everything to do with God. There was a man who served in his court, actually served in his home. His name was Obadiah. He worked with Ahab and he worked with Jezebel. He was over the home. And when Jezebel said, let's kill all the prophets of God. We want to knock out this religion. and We want to remove its influence from our government. Let's kill them all. Obadiah took a hundred that he could get to. And he moved them by fifties in the cave. And he snuck them food and he snuck them water. Civil disobedience. Disobeying his boss because he knew what was right and what was wrong. What about Elijah? Elijah, clearly a prophet of God. As a matter of fact, Elijah came out of the wilderness after three years of no rain. He comes out of the wilderness, and he sees Obadiah. And he he tells Obadiah, go tell Ahab I'm here. And Obadiah's like, I don't want to do that. He's he's been looking for you for three years. And I'm going to go say, I found him. And when I get back, some angel's going to have taken you away, and I'm going to die as a result of it. And Elijah said, I'll speak to Ahab today. Go squared away. And Ahab comes, and hey, when Ahab sees Elijah coming, what does he call him? You remember? Oh, troubler of Israel. And he calls him out. Elijah calls out Ahab for his rebellion for his, against God, for his disobedience, for his sin, for the wickedness of his own heart. Many times we have that in Scripture. It's important that we grasp and we understand. And some of you will say, listen, All that's Old Testament stuff. What about the New Testament? I am so glad you asked. Francis Schaeffer remarked that God ordained the state as a delegated authority. It is not autonomous. The bottom line is that at a certain point, there is not only the right, but the duty to disobey the state. The story of the prophet and the politician. I've got to tell you this, and you guys probably know this. We haven't even got to the points under point three yet. Hold on, we'll get to them. We'll go pretty quick through them. This is... We've got to understand the dynamics that we see in Scripture. You guys remember John the Baptist? What a preacher. Coming out of the wilderness, crowds coming, proclaiming the day of the Lord. Repent and be baptized. Repent and believe because the Messiah that God has promised has come. And he preaches and he preaches and crowds come and he points to Jesus. But those aren't the only subjects of his sermon. You see, he's in the region of Galilee, and there is a Roman ruler in Galilee. His name is Herod Antipas. He is the grandson, or one of the, one of the sons, of Herod the Great. And he was given this area there in, uh, in, in Galilee to rule. He was the tetrarch, which is sub-king. He was the delegated political authority of the day, and he identified as a Jew. I want you to understand that that's important. But one day, Herod, probably A.D. 26, he went to Rome as Rome's representative there. And he had a half-brother named Philip. Philip had a wife 16 years younger than him named Herodia. Well, Herod fell in love with Herodia, and Herodia fell in love with Herod, Herod Antipas. Well, she was already married, so I don't know how this worked out. Historians, by the way, if you really want some soap opera stuff, go read the history on this stuff. But they worked it out so that Philip divorced from Herodia. Herod divorced from his wife. P-H-A-E-S-I-A-L. I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, he divorced from her, and Herod married Herodia while they were in Rome, and he brought her back home as his wife. Leviticus says, a man shall not take his brother's wife. It is an abomination to him. Come out while, while he is still living. It is abomination before God. It is uncovering him, if you will. And it's a clear sin. The Jews were outraged. And at least one of the messages that John the Baptist preached was, Herod, you're sinning against a holy God, and what you've done is immoral. How do we know that? Because Herod arrested John. Put him in prison. But here's the interesting: Herod liked John. The Bible said he would listen to him gladly. Herodia didn't like him at all. It was a birthday party, and Herodia's teenage daughter, a young daughter, uh, with Philip came and she danced and Herod was pleased and it was one of those revelry things and he did one of those not thought out things that religious I mean that civil leaders or that politicians or that people do and he said oh that was great listen what do you want you can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom and her mother said I want John the Baptist's head on a platter and so that's what she asked for and Herod was sad but he was stupid and he did it he went and he brought him out, had him beheaded, had his head brought on a platter and given. John called out the government. He called out the political leader for his own immorality. He went to prison and ultimately died. A New Testament idea of confronting the government, important to note. What about the preacher and the eth- ecclesiastical authority when Peter and John preached and they stood before the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin said, shut up. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. You're causing an uproar. You're going to get us in trouble. And they said, what? you tell us what you think. Should we obey you or should we obey God? And they went right back out and preached. That's Acts chapter 4. Keep going. The first part of Acts chapter 5, where are they found? In the temple, preaching. And it's reported again to the Sanhedrin and the, San- the, the re- leaders of the day And they had them brought in said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. And they imprisoned them. By the way, there was an angelic jailbreak. And the next morning when they went to bring their prisoners to them, the cells were empty. And they found them back in the temple preaching. Well, now the Jewish leaders didn't know what to do, so they beat them. Imprisoning didn't work. They beat them. And the disciples responded, the apostles Peter and John responded, by rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Festus, Acts chapter 24 and 26. At the very, All right, now we're going to go down the list because this is important. I want you to get this. This is really the, the point of the message. Here's some things that you do when government gets it wrong. First of all, point A. You call out the wrong. You call out the wrong. First, you call it out to the church and to your family. You point out the wrong that the government is doing or that others are doing in order not to copy it, not to emulate it for the church. Write these verses down really quick. You can look them up later. Mark 8, 14 and 15. Luke 22, 25 and 27. Mark 8, 14 and 15. Luke 22, 25 to 27. In both, Jesus uses the government, the government, the rulers, as an example of what should not be. In one passage, the Mark passage, he tells them to watch out for the leaven of Herod. And in the other passage, he tells tells them, look at these rulers. They lord it over people, and then they identi- identify identified themselves as benefactors. Don't do this. Don't be like them. And so one of the things we do in the context of a church where we are here seeking purity, where we're under a different constitution, is we identify what's wrong there and we explain why we don't do it to our children and to people that ask, giving every man an answer. Giving every man an answer. I had to have this conversation several years ago about why we don't marry two men and why we don't marry two women in our church and why we won't. Because of what God says about his plan for marriage. And we follow a higher authority. Second, as you have opportunity, speak to the government. Speak out. Call out the wrong. Speak to the church, but then speak to the government. But here's where we get it wrong. We typically speak to simply relieve our frustrations. We speak to condemn lost people for behaving like lost people. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there's a man in sin in the church, and the church is giving approving, approval for that? And Paul says, you guys are doing something that even the pagans don't do. Here's a guy sleeping with his father's wife, and you're not calling it out. You're turning a blind eye. I've already judged him, and you should have already judged him, in order that he might find redemption. And then he goes on to say, listen, I'm not talking about those outside the church. Lost people act like lost people. I'm talking about those inside the church. And we need to understand that we're not here just to vent or to change behavior. We're here to exemplify and to lift up the cross of Christ, the truth of Christ. We, we do not simply speak to condemn lost people for behaving like lost people, but we do, as we can, call government to account. Again, wow, boy, I told you it's going to be a long sermon. Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul has been beaten and put in prison, and he's a Roman citizen. They come the next day to secretly let him out. And he says, I'm not leaving. You tell the people that put me here to come let me go. Because I'm a Roman citizen and they've detained me illegally. And he called them out according to the legal system of his day. Look it up. It's in Acts chapter 16, verses 36 through 40. We point out the bad that the government is doing we point out the immorality that they do look at Paul in Acts chapter 24 and Acts chapter 26 when he's speaking to Felix and then to Agrippa or be like Justin Martyr who wrote a letter to the Roman Senate and he told them in his letter you will not escape the coming judgment of God as you continue your injustice and so we speak but we speak though we are to when we speak we are to speak to convince by the way I put this, go ahead and put C on there. I put B and C wrong on your outline. I interposed them. We speak, but we speak to convince. You remember what we already studied remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy for all people. We engage and we call out, but we do with the aim to convince rather than just ranting. We trust God is sovereign, and we cultivate civility in our life. How did John speak to Herod? How did Jesus speak to Pilate? How did Paul speak to Festus and Agrippa? How did Peter and John speak to the Sanhedrin? Uh, again, all of these examples. We have calling out and yet doing so civilly. Jesus condemned, was condemned. And yet he spoke not a word. And I mentioned that even Herod liked to listen to John the Baptist. Mark six twenty says, Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. Yet he continued to hear him gladly. Now, Back to point B on your outline, C on mine. There are times when we have to engage in civil disobedience. That is, the public, nonviolent, conscientious resistance to or breaking of the law deemed to be unjust. Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. In those cases, we must disobey the state. That's John R. Stott. And Francis Schaeffer said, God ordained the state as a delegated authority, not autonomous. Let me give you just a couple examples of this. You guys remember COVID? Our state did not mandate the closing of churches. Praise the Lord. Had they, it was my intent to remain open. You could choose whether to participate or choose to not. But it was my intent to invite you together with me to continue to worship. And to continue to study. But even that choice was taken out of our hands because the Hilton closed and we had no place to meet. And so we met online. The churches in California, churches in Canada, there's a pastor in Canada who is still in prison because he said the church is essential. God has commanded us to gather together. Now, there's more complex than that. There are churches who also said, We feel like we have a responsibility, and by our conscience and by our conviction, we're going to suspend public gatherings. And there are churches who said, by our conscience and by our conviction, we can't suspend public gatherings. But I'm going to let you know that when the government mandates a law that you, by conscience and by by command, cannot follow, then you don't follow it. What about Zelensky? And I just heard something about this this morning. I understand that the president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, is closing some churches there. What about China? When they shut down churches and they went and they confiscated land and they brought in these big equipment and just tore the buildings to pieces right in front of the people and imprisoned the members. What do you do in that context? That's not happened here. What do you do in that context? Do you stop worshiping? Do you stop gathering? Do you stop with your allegiance to the King of Kings? You don't. You may have to hide. You may have to go underground. We have history of that both in Old Testament. We have history of that in the New Testament. Later, we certainly have a lot of history of the church, of the persecuted church. But the bottom line is that there are certain that there comes a point when the church mandates, condemns something that God commands or commands something that God condemns, that we have to stand for truth. But here's an, the corresponding principle, and don't miss this, you face the consequences. You stand for truth, you behave sil- civilly, and you face the consequences. With the understanding that the corresponding principle, we face the consequences of one acts is in place, That when we willingly violate the law, if it's a bad law or an unjust law, that we should be willing to pay the price for such disobedience. We do that to show that the believer has a high view of government and of rule of law, and he's not a rebel or just an anarchist. But to demonstrate that our motive is our conscience. The earliest disciples were willing to go to jail as a consequence of their refusal to obey, and they were even willing to be put to death. I want to tell you about one more group of guys. These are three guys in England. They were Protestant bishops. As a matter of fact, you can go to Oxford now in front of Balliol College on Broad Street, and there's a cross there made of different colored cobblestones. It's called the Martyr's Cross. Three Protestant bishops, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and Thomas Cramner, were burned at the stake on that spot. Mary, Queen of Scots, commanded that they renounce their religion, commanded that they renounce what they believed and what they were teaching in the Word of God, and they refused. On October the 16th, 1555, Bishops Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake while Cramner was forced to watch from the tower of the prison right there because they refused to obey the law that was given by the monarch of the time and to renounce their belief in Christ. The reason that Cramner was not burned at the same time was because he had been granted an appeal through the courts. These two men stood back to back at the stake, and the last words that one of them spoke to the other, Latimer spoke to Ridley, and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And I told you that there may be times when the church has to go underground, when the church has to hide. When the church has to flee somewhere where there can be religious freedom, which is part of the founding of this country here, it's important. and even the Jewish persecution where the Jews were persecuted and the Christian Jews were persecuted, and they went to, went to Antioch and they went to Rome and started churches around. And so we stand for truth. We face the consequences. Right, two more things really quick. Get involved in politics. If you want a hot topic? Go on Google. Should Christians be involved in politics? It's humorous. What you'll find on there. But I will tell you that we ought to serve in the government. There are no commands for 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 those who are in government when they to leave their government positions when they got saved. We talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about Daniel, uh, who were not in the Jewish government. They were in the Babylonian and and uh, or the Chaldean, and then the uh, uh, Persian government uh there were believers who were saved under the ministry in the new testament who served in the roman government and were told to continue i love what tim keller says christians ought to invade every job every role in society you ought to vote y'all do know elections are coming up right one day and they're very important And we have a responsibility to vote. And you ought to campaign. You ought to share. You ought to speak to convince and honor. But here's the above all. Above all, remember one day the kingdoms of this world will pass away and only one kingdom will remain. The kingdoms of this world will all become the kingdom of our God and he shall reign forever and ever. And what matters is that we share the gospel and that we pray. First of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We ought to be evangelizing as many people as possible. We ought to be sharing the gospel at every platform. We ought to... Grant, Now, there's a lot more to this conversation. I want you to understand that, but I'm going to stop this sermon now. You can all breathe a sigh of relief. What do Christians do when government gets it wrong? First of all, we obey God rather than men. And in that obedience, we accept whatever consequences come, trusting in God to deliver us in however he chooses to do so. But when we disagree and we call out sin and immorality, when we call out injustice and those things, that we ought to stand for justice. We ought to be known for standing for justice across the board. When we call out injustice, we ought to do so civilly. We ought to do so to convince, not just to berate. Because we should never have a conversation, and I'm going to close with this, but we should never have a conversation with someone about politics that you can't then share the love of Christ and the good news of Christ with them in the same conversation. Amen? We need to speak to be heard and speak the truth of God's Word faithfully and consistently. we got a great privilege, we have a great responsibility to serve God in every avenue. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know that governments get it wrong because they're people, they're fallen and Father, while we want to honor and submit and we want to show respect and honor to the governments that you've put in place, we trust you with the governments that you put in place. We also, Father, want to stand on truth the way that you have demonstrated in your word that we can trust you, that we can we can, we can make your name known and make your name great. That we can exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished. And when the government condemns what you command, we walk in obedience to your command. And when the government commands what you condemn, we abstain because we belong to you. And we leave the consequences to you, trusting in you to work in us, to work through us for your glory. Above all, Father, may we be salt and light, not flying off the handle, not going every which way, not out of control, but doing good works, that people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Give us grace, Father, and let us be the purveyors of grace, those who communicate your grace to the world around us. We love you and we trust you. In your name I pray. Amen.